Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your supervisors and managers, please check out our newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Boss. In this 13-month program, I'll be taking your managers through our driving results curriculum, and that includes topics on communication, performance management, motivation, delegation, problem-solving, decision-making, team development, and much more. The sessions are virtual, running one hour each month, and I'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoints, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide tactical, practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You can either have your entire organization take our program, or if you have just a few folks, join one of our open enrollment cohorts that start every other month. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. Now, unless you've been living on another planet, the past few years have shown that we're in a time of unimagined and unrelenting change, and we're not good at it. According to McKinsey & Company, an alarming 70% of all change initiatives fail, largely because we're biologically hardwired to return to work, what's worked for us before. But to create the future we hope for and cope with the here and now, we need to embrace the very thing that we're wired to avoid, says one author expert thought leader. And you know what? We have that thought leader on the show today. Erica Anderson is the founding partner of Proteus International, and she talks to us today about the book that she's recently authored, Change from the Inside Out, Making You, Your Team, and Your Organization Change Capable. We had a great conversation. It's a topic that is absolutely relevant today, and I know you're going to get lots and lots of positive takeaways from this episode. So let's quit talking about Erica. Let's talk to her. You know what time it is. Let's go ahead and make sure that personal item's tucked underneath the seat in front of you. Keep your seatbelt buckled. Time for us to taxi to the runway. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Erica Anderson, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm really glad you could join us too. So to date the podcast a little, it's the day after the four-day Thanksgiving holiday. I'm I don't I'm probably the only one that put on ten pounds over the weekend, but you know we got a little bit of time before Christmas where we can remove that. But we want to talk today, Erica, about the book that you've just written here. It's Change from the Inside Out: Making You, Your Team, and Your Organizations Change Capable. This last couple of years have been probably 20 years worth of change, all crammed into 18 months. And I'm not altogether sure everybody's in a good place right now. So we want to talk about that. We want to talk about change. Um, the old buzzword out there is the only constant in life is change. But it sounds like you've got some good strategies for us. So we're going to get into that. But before we do, Erica, I was hoping you could... Take us through your journey, your background, and tell us what you're working on today. Um, okay, so I'll do the kind of, you know, Reader's Digest version of it. So 30 plus years ago, at the end of the 1980s, I was working, had been working for a while in um, mostly corporate training, some organizational development, and I really wanted to start my own company. 
for two reasons. Uh, one was, this was the 1980s, right? So skills, leadership skills, management skills, team and communication skills, at 40 years ago, people called those soft skills. Like they don't really matter, you know? We don't really <laughs> and, uh, and I really saw as things were starting to, even then, you know, speed up and flatten out that those were going to be the important skills. And in fact, our original tagline for Proteus, my company was skills for mastering the future, because I really mm -hmm. thought these were the skills that we were going to need and turned out I was pretty much right. <laughs> um, and then the other thing I wanted to do, I really wanted to become with my clients, what has now come to be called a business partner. At the time in training in OD, it was like a widget factory. We'd like three listening trainings, please. You know, And I really wanted to have a collaborative relationship where I could help my clients, help our clients figure out, well, what, what came to be our mission at Proteus, which is helping people clarify and move toward their hoped for future. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with clients to help them get clear about the future they were trying to create either for themselves or for their organizations, and then offer them tools and insights and understanding to be able to achieve that, that vision. And so that's what we've been doing for the last 30 plus years and continue to do. That's interesting that you say the soft skills, because I often, I don't hear that as much anymore, but yes. you're right. Uh, that was, I, you know, kind of came up in the late eighties, early nineties with some of that stuff. And yeah. then people would say, oh no, these aren't soft skills. Cause everybody just sort of blew them off. These are essential skills. Precisely. And I don't know if, I don't know if you've gone kind of through that iteration to now, these are basically, you know, the skills that'll make somebody more successful. I don't know. Are people sort of weaving in now emotional intelligence as part of what these essential skills would be? Yeah. What has been added to it recently that sort of made it more brought up to the future? That's a great question. And I, and I, and I have noticed in the kind of conversation, business conversation over the last 30 years that you're right. People now understand how essential these are. And a lot of it has to do with data. I mean, there's a lot of research now that shows that the leaders who are most successful, for instance, do have some nuts and bolts skills. I mean, they understand how to they understand business, they understand finances, but the more important um, skills for success for a leader are, can they build a team? Can they create trust? Can they create a psychologically safe environment? Can they communicate clearly? Can they listen well? You know, these things that 30 years ago didn't get a lot of respect. Now, research has shown that the leaders who do these things well are much more likely to be successful at creating um, good teams that can get great results. What was it that brought us to where we are today? I mean, before maybe it was command and control, do it because I said so. Yeah. I mean, could we still use that methodology today and be successful or has the audience changed? What's what's made that more relevant today? So I, I don't think we could use it and be successful for a number of reasons. One is the audience has changed, but the um, Command and control works best in a relatively simple uh, environment where there aren't a lot of variables and where the outcomes are pretty linearly connected to the efforts, which doesn't describe life or business anymore. And so that's one thing. It's just not, it's not a good enough tool. Command and control isn't a good enough set of tools. But more important, I think, is the audience. I mean, one of the things that I've always liked about millennials and now like about Gen Z is they're just not going to put up with that. <laughs> you know, they want to have a voice. They want to, they want things to be 
democratic in the work in the best sense of the word. Um, they they want that they want to bring their whole selves to work, which is a good thing because then you get all their passion and creativity, and they want to then be rewarded for that and included in the conversation. And I think it's primarily a good thing. Um, but yeah, I don't think command and control is going to work for anybody much anymore. Well, I sort of cut my teeth in that I was in the military for 15 years. And of course that is command and control. And, you know, there's a very good reason for that. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, we don't have, we didn't have longevity. I mean, you might have a commanding officer who comes in for two years and then they leave. And then a, a new one comes in with a completely different vision, completely different style. So everybody adapts, but there was no democracy. It's basically, yeah. you know, you don't just have to take it and, you know, and I'm kind of curious too. You know, you mentioned millennials and Gen Z. So I'm a I'm a I'm the last of the boomers, born in '64. So for that reason, I sort of identified a little more with Generation X, most of my peers. Yeah. But I can remember even back when I was in my you know 20s, early 20s, thinking kind of the same thing. Like, this is ridiculous. You know, I want to have a voice. Of course, you know, you don't have a voice when you're you know in a command and control. Yeah. So, so is it a youth thing or is it a generation thing? I mean, could we go back 200 years and have 20 year olds who say, Hey, enough of the command and control, you know, back in the old West or something, or is, do you think this is humans cyclical or is it really seriously a generational issue of today? I believe it's really seriously a generational issue. I mean, young people, generally speaking, because they lack experience, they sometimes have unrealistic expectations of how things will work. Or, But I do think it's different. I think people in their 20s and 30s now, and it's partly, um, it's partly technology. I mean, there are good things and bad things about technology, but it's created a much more... Um, level playing field in in some ways like thomas friedman's book the world is flat you know and they came out 20 years ago it's 15 years ago now i think that's really true and you know people who are in their 30s say 20s and 30s who have grown up where you can find out anything anytime if you want to buy something on amazon you go and see what 300 people think about it you know there's just a lot more information and so i think to go into a traditional organization where it's just like you know, shut up and deal with it. We're not going to tell you what's going on. They're just like, no, that's not how the world works. And they vote with their feet. That's the other thing that's different is we as as boomers or Gen X, we may have kind of grumbled, but we didn't vote with our feet. We stayed at those jobs, you mm -hmm. know, and now the, there's a lot of research that shows that millennials and especially Gen Z are like, nope, I'm not staying. I'm going to go find a company where I care about the purpose and they're willing to treat me well. And I'm, I'm going, I'm going to do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think things like uh, like Glassdoor, where people can basically really voice their opinion, typically on their way out the door, if that puts pressure on leaders today to be better at what they do? It absolutely does. It absolutely does. And I've talked to a lot of leaders who, who look at Glassdoor and who just talking to an HR leader the other day who said, wow, we're some of what we're doing is not being seen in a positive light by employees and we got to do something about that. So, yes. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that a little bit this morning. I was talking with my mom and my mom is in her late eighties and I'm trying to get her to go to the doctor. You know, she moved down here a few months ago. And so uh, her doctor I'd recommended didn't take her insurance. So she's like, well, how do I know if I have a good doctor? I said, well, let's first find you one ma. And she said, well, how would we know? I mean, I don't want a bad doctor. I said, well, 
I says, you have a good doctor and a bad doctor. I says, the worst is having no doctor, right? I says, but what we do is once we pick one, we go online and we look at reviews. Exactly. Oh, I didn't know we could do that. I says, yeah, of course. I said, you know, typically people are only going to do a review when they're pissed about something, but at least we could have a general consensus. Is it possible that a leader could almost have online reviews? I mean, what a what pressure that could be, huh? You do have online reviews. That's, you know, one of the things that Glassdoor is, how do you see the CEO of the company, you know? So I think we're definitely going in that direction. And again, generally speaking, I think it's good. Now, I'm, I, I think that I'm, you know, one of the things I talk about in my new book is how we're wired to think that change is generally bad. And I, I'm, I've rewired myself to the point where I'm at least neutral about most change. So I don't think of this as a bad thing, but you know, I know that a lot of people do think of it as negative. Well, let's talk about change and let's talk about the book. So what was the inspiration for this book? Oh, that's a great question. So we, we have had a change practice for almost a decade and we have a simple five-step model that integrates the human side and the practical side of change, which is what we've always understood to be the most powerful thing. The human side of change often just gets given a look and a promise if that. And, and so as we were, you know, as it was ramping up, this was in 2018 before the pandemic, I, I, when I write books, this is my fifth book. And when I write books, I'm always trying to crack some kind of a code. And the code I wanted to crack here, because I think there's simplicity at the heart of complexity, is why is change so hard for us? I really wanted to get a handle on that. Why is change so hard? And then how, when we do go through a change, what happens? I felt like if I could get clearer about that, I could help both individuals get better, you know, rewire themselves to get better at going through change and also help leaders know how to help their people. And I feel like I found good answers to both of those questions. So that's the first third of the book is the answers to those questions. And then I talk through our five-step model as a, really the five-step model is a way to cascade that mindset shift of people accepting a change through an organization while you do the nuts and bolts part of the change, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. So Let's talk then about, all right, so I want to talk about those two questions. I don't want you to give me all the answers because I want people to buy the book. See, I've already bought the book. My plan is on this trip, I'm going up to Connecticut. That will be my uh, flight entertainment on my audio. I've got the audio book of it. But, but I do want to at least give people a few little breadcrumbs so that we could lead them to the online thing to buy the book. So could we at least take a stab at answering those two questions? Uh, okay, so here's what we discovered about change. So I'm a big student of history and I think a lot of answers are found in history, right? So if you think about it until fairly recently, any individual person's life did not change much from beginning to end. 100 years ago, 200, 500, 1000, you usually were born and grew up in the same place and in the same place that your parents had. If my dad's a farmer, I'm likely to be a farmer. If my dad's a pipe fitter, I'm likely to be a pipe fitter. You know, we had, uh, if you went to school, you went to school at the same place your folks did and then your kids went to school, you know, life did not change that much. And when there was a change, it was generally an aberration and a danger, a war, a famine, plague, an earthquake, you know, change was generally dangerous because life day to day did not change much. And so we have this 
as a result of thousands and thousands of years of this is what our lives were like, this, this conditioning toward homeostasis to come back to the known because that feels like conditions for survival. So if there's a war, we want to come back to being peaceful. If there's a famine, we want to come back to having enough to eat, you know, to come back to that known state. So that's really deep wiring in us. So when a change, especially when a change comes at us, when it's not our idea, our initial thing is that it's going to be dangerous. And so what we what we noticed, so then I thought, oh gosh, that makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> so let's look at what happens when somebody actually does go through a change, when somebody overcomes their conditioning, if you will, and, and, and makes a change. So we came to call this the change arc. And the first thing that happens is we almost intuitively start to want to gather some information about the change. And it's, we always want to know the same things. We want to know, what does this mean for me, right? What am I going to have to change? Why is it happening? Because we have such a preference for the status quo, we need some really good reasons to even think about changing. So why is it happening? And then, and I thought this was so interesting when I figured this out, what will it look like when the change has been made? Right, because we mm -hmm. have this because of our history with change. We have such a deep fear of the unknown. In fact, one of the pieces of research I discovered when I was writing the book is that a lot of psychologists now believe that our deepest fear is fear of the unknown. Right, like yeah. walking in a dark alley at night. So if somebody says we're going to change, and they don't tell you what it will look like when the change has been made, that's terrifying. So we start trying to gather these these pieces of information, and and when I figured this out, I was so excited. And our initial mindset as we're starting to ask these questions is almost without exception, we think the change is going to be difficult, costly, and weird, right? Yeah. Difficult means I don't know how to do this and other people are going to make it hard to do. It's just there are going to be a lot of obstacles. <laughs> costly could mean time or money. But more likely, it's invisible kind of intrinsic things. We think that it's going to cost us our reputation to make this change or our relationships or our identity or some power, right? Really important intrinsic things we think it's gonna take away from us. And then weird just means strange, like that's not how we do things around here, right? Mm -hmm. So then I noticed that when someone actually did make a change, they shifted or were helped to shift their mindset from thinking that the change was going to be difficult, costly and weird to thinking that it could be easy, difficult to easy, or at mm -hmm. least doable, right? Rewarding, more rewarding than costly, and normal. And normal in this context means I look around and people who I think of as being like me seem open to doing it, they're cool with doing it. <laughs> and then also people who I admire and, and, and want to be, want to emulate do it, which is why it's so critical for leaders to model a change, right? To mm -hmm. not say, you do it, I'm not gonna do it, to, but to model it because people are looking to see if it's normal and a big part of normal is, is my leader actually doing it. So we noticed when people started to make this mindset shift and you can tell by how, how we talk, like what we think comes out of our mouths, right? So when people go from saying, oh, well, this is gonna be a pain and I don't know how to do it and it's gonna to take too long to going, well, you know, I, I could probably learn how to do it. I hear there's a training thing and Joe does it and he seems okay with it. And Sally, my boss, who I like, seems good with it. You know, they start saying these easy, rewarding, normal things. And we noticed that it was only when people started to make that mindset shift 
that they began to be open to the change, to embracing the change, to doing the new behaviors the change required, and then the change could occur. So I got very excited because I realized that if we can help people be better at making that mindset shift consciously, then they uh -huh. will become more change capable and change won't be as daunting, won't be as exhausting, won't, but we won't, we'll, we'll stop, we'll stop thinking of change as we have for thousands of years as being an aberration. And we'll see change as it is now, especially now, you know, in the pandemic mm -hmm. as the norm. Things are just going to keep changing. So if we can rewire ourselves to make that mindset shift more quickly, we can at least come into change neutral, right? Yeah. And then assess whether is this gonna be a good change, a necessary change or not. It's, it's hard to assess even whether a change is a good idea if you're just like, it's gonna be a difficult, costly, weird, right? So coming, helping people come into a change neutral so they can see what it really is and if it's a good necessary change to make it. I'm not sure, you know, I don't think there's any data collected, but I'm curious because, you know, the largest change, of course, I've seen in the past two years, as most people, is a complete shift in everything that we've done. It's almost been like the biggest possible change. Yes. So it seems like that was like a thing about, I guess, like a big wave. It's just it's going to hit everybody. Yeah. I don't know. Do, do you think anybody just sort of surfed that big wave? I mean, it seems like everybody I know just got crushed by it. So. I mean, do you think anybody really came through kind of using this methodology or are we all basically going to have to start from scratch? Because I think a lot of people now are going to be spooked. I mean, you could think about, I mean, we're dating this podcast. So Omicron comes up over the weekend, over the holiday weekend, and immediately it's like everybody's putting up the walls, which I guess is an absolute necessity, but it almost seems like anytime a change comes, we're in this mode where like, okay, we're going to fight. Is that what we're looking for? Or, I mean, and I don't know whether we could even take a reading because I don't think anybody's in a really good psychological place right now, with the exception of yourself, obviously, because you wrote the book on it. But well, I think, um, I think like everything, it's a bell curve, you know? So there are people who, um, as, as I've observed, having, having understood this pattern, there are people all the way at the top of the curve who are pretty change capable who when a change comes they're pretty neutral about it like i this may sound weird i feel pretty neutral about omicron until i find out more i'm not freaking mm -hmm. out i'm not not freaking out it's just like i don't know i don't know what's going let's let's see is this going to be easy to make the changes that we need to make here how how risky is it going to be i don't but i don't feel freaked out i just feel like okay let's see what's going to happen here you know mm -hmm. so i i feel like there are people like that who are pretty change capable who don't like, as you say, fight or free, it's just like, hmm, let's see. And then there are people down at the other end of the curve who no matter what the change is, they're, they're freaked out. They're unhappy. They're upset. They feel, uh, you know, imposed upon. The, and then, you know, and then there's people in the middle. I mean, it, I, I, it's what I've noticed, especially over the last couple of years, it's, it's very individual and people are at, um, very different levels of what I would call change capability. Okay. Yeah. I'm wondering, I just keep thinking, is this going to kind of reset the thoughts on change, at least in the short term until after a while, you know, things tend to, after the big crisis is ever, people tend to forget about it. And then we move on to the next big thing. But I'm just wondering if this will almost reset everybody's change readiness or capability, or if that bell curve will just sort of remain constant for the next few years. 
You know, I think it has, yes, I, I think the pandemic has re, reset us in some ways and in some ways made people more open, more people more open to the idea that change is just a constant and is, is the norm. I mean, you know, you said that there's this, there is, there has been this saying for a long time, the only constant is change, but people have not really believed that. <laughs> I think the pandemic has made us all go, oh my gosh, not just the pandemic, but just where we are technologically and in terms of global communication. It, and and I remember, I'm sure you probably do too, at the very beginning of the pandemic, a number of things happened one right after the other that it was like, oh my gosh, this, can this? and I remember for me, the very first thing was, and it was right after the WHO declared a global pandemic. And then a couple of days later, they canceled the New York St. Patrick's Day parade. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, they can't do that. What do you mean? You know, and then a couple of days later, they can't cancel the NBA finals, you know, and then a few days after that, wait, they're closing the schools. And I, it just, you know, it got more and more and all these things that we would have thought were impossible all happened like one mm -hmm. after the other. And I think that kind of took the lid off of it. And in, in the, the good news about that is things that we've thought of as intractable and would never change that need to change, like the climate crisis or, you know, societal inequities. I feel like we, oh, well, maybe we can, maybe we can do something about these. So that's the good thing. But the bad thing is about that is people are, as you say, both terrified and exhausted. And, you know, we, we need to get our heads around that this is, that I, even once we get the pandemic more under control, assuming that we do, it's still, we're still in this era of nonstop change that it's not going to go back to normal, which is what we all hope somewhere in the back of our minds, you know? Well, maybe we'll just kind of build a tolerance. You know, I, I think back when nine 11 happened and overnight air travel changed and then yes. it became a huge hassle. Like, Oh my gosh, now that's the least of your worries when you go to the airport, isn't it? It's like, Oh yeah, I, I take my shoes off. Yeah, no problem. Oh, I got to wear a mask. Wait a minute here. Yeah. So there's this new wrinkle on top of the old wrinkle. The old wrinkle doesn't seem to be a hassle anymore. And I can remember what it was like when security wasn't even TSA. You walk through the metal detector, you set it off, and they say, yeah, just go on through. Yeah, that samurai sword, you can take it with you. Yeah, just don't hit anybody with it. Right? enough that you remember when people came to meet your flight at the gate. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and, you know, to think about that was over 20 years ago that we could do that. And that was the norm. You look and it's funny to watch old movies where people are flying. Well, number one, they're flying and there's an empty seat next to them. So that's <laughs> yeah, that's right. probably the largest change in air travel. Exactly. So maybe what we're doing is, is maybe this could be almost like a vaccine for our change readiness. Right. We're building up a tolerance yeah. and a yes. like we can handle it. Is that kind of is that make any sense? That makes complete sense. I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's exactly right. And and certainly how we're thinking of it, like when we, you know, we're doing some really major change slash transformation projects with big clients that involve thousands of people. And we talk about that. We talk about, we're trying to help them through this change, but we're trying to help them in the process become more change capable as individuals and as an organization so that they are, to your point, inoculated against change so that change doesn't feel so threatening and like such an aberration, but like the way things have to happen because it is, it's not going to go back. Yeah. Well, the person that is listening to this today is typically an HR department of one or, you know, typically kind of a smaller department. 
So they often are the ones we find that sort of get saddled with, okay, you need to come up with a plan for this. This is from the C-suite, even though, you know, they're not always invited to the table with yeah. the C-suite, but they're given that edict. So I want to talk about, first of all, keeping that audience in mind, what would the, what is the senior leadership's responsibility during a change? And then what do you see as the HR department's responsibility as we go through a change? Man, that's a, I really love that question. So senior leadership, I feel like is responsible for doing what, what we prescribe in our five-step model. We wouldn't prescribe it if we didn't think it was useful. But the first step of that model is usually a change, as you know, happens with some small group of fairly senior leaders. They start, they're thinking about the business and they think we got to change this or it responds to something like the pandemic or like, they're like, oh, we got to change. So the, the first step is clarify the change and why it's needed. And that sounds so obvious, but lots of times senior leaders just roll into a change without really getting clear about what actually is changing. Why is it necessary? And then the second step, which is envision the future state. And if you, if you remember, I said the first three things people want to know about a change is what's the change? Why is it happening? What will it look like when it's done? So in the first two steps, we're encouraging senior leaders to get clear about those things on behalf of the organization so that they can communicate them to everybody. First, hopefully, to the HR person and the other senior leaders, and then, you know, subsequently to the rest of the organization. Then the third step we call build the change. And it's bringing together a change team who's actually going to drive and manage this change through your organization because it's usually not the senior leadership they may they're probably a sponsor but it's usually one or two levels down think about who the other stakeholders are the people who can really affect the the success of this change other you know if they're not on the change team or in the senior leadership and then build the actual change plan you know and have the change team do it because they're going to be having to manage and drive it through the organization hopefully the head of hr is on that change team and then the fourth step, which almost never happens, is we call lead the transition. So it's figure out, first think about the people in the organization who are going to be most affected by the change and think through, and we have some levers to help people do this, how can you help them through their mindset shift in that change arc, right? To go from difficult, costly, weird to easy, rewarding, normal. How can you help them understand and accept the change and make an actual plan for that? We call it a transition plan. And then execute the transition plans and the change plans simultaneously so people are helped through psychologically through the change while you're executing on the practical parts of the change. And then the fifth step is keep the change going. So a lot of times once they've made a change and organizations rarely do the human part of it. So once they do the executional part of it, then it's like, good, we're done. And they don't really stop to see either adoption or how the change needs to change because almost without exception, when you make a big change, there are unintended consequences. And so if you keep your eye on the change, you'll see, oh, you know what? That's not working the way we thought it was. We need to, we need to change it more. Like an example I give in the book is, um, a, a company that makes a big change to the production process for their core product and they automate part of the process and that automation worked great but they one of the measures of success was that the line would speed up and it wasn't speeding up and what they found out is when it went from human to automation then back to human the line slowed back down again because the automation part of the process was kicking out more product 
but there was still only one person at the end of that automated part and they were slowing it back down again. So they had to make an additional change to put a couple of people on the line at that point to keep it. They had to double the line in effect after the automation part to keep it up. And that's a change too. And people are gonna need to be helped through that change in the same way. So, um, so if you keep your eyes on it and keep improving it and making it better and making sure that it's uh, yielding the results that you want in that fifth step, you can really keep the change going. So how long how long do you have to typically sort of monitor this thing before it's locked in and becomes just like what taking off your shoes at TSA oh. is for most of us today? It's just like nobody complains. Yes. It, I mean, they do, but it's like some people complain if you hang them with a new rope, you know? Exactly. So, so is it is it this kind of thing where we have to always sort of monitor it? Or what is the typical time frame before it becomes part of what we do? It's a really good question, and it really depends on the change. It depends on how big of a change it is from what was happening before. It depends on how um, beneficial it is. Beneficial, you know, changes that are easily seen as beneficial by a large number of people are institutionalized faster. Mm -hmm. um, so it depends on a lot of factors. But um, for a kind of medium-sized organizational change, if you're doing yourself right and really monitoring and making, listening to people's input and making sure somewhere three to nine to 12 months, it's, you know, as you say, business as usual, it's institutionalized. Okay. Yeah. I'm just kind of curious about, you know, the, the long-term effects of change and are there going to be some people who eventually are going to become more comfortable with change or will there be people that no matter what it is, will always seem to push back. And I guess my follow on is, is there any value in bringing in some of those most reluctant people to be part of the effort or would they just give you more impediments? You know, it's, a, again, you're asking all these great questions. So it, it depends on whether you can tell, and I talk about this a little in the book, that um, when you're in step four and you're leading the transition, you're helping people make that change. When people question a change, some people, those questions are sincere. They're really trying to understand it and really trying to get their heads around it. Other people, they're, they're, they're just stuck and they're going to be stuck and nothing that you can do will help. And so then you have to figure out, is there a job for them in the organization that won't be affected by this change or are they just not going to be with the program and this isn't a good place for them anymore? But one of the things that, that you look for is, when people are asking questions about the change, are they, or when people, like, especially when people are saying, I don't think this change is working, right? It's step five. And you say, why? And if they have real input, if they say, well, I've talked to a couple of clients and it's not easier for them. Oh, wow. That's something we need to really look into then help us, help us figure this out. But if their response is just, I just don't think it's good. I just don't think it's going to work. I just think this isn't the way we're meant to do things. They're, they're probably not going to move. I mean, if you've given them all the support you can, the training, the understanding, you know, the support, and they're not, they're still just saying things like, this is a bad idea. This will never work. Well, okay. Then we may have to encourage you to take your considerable talents elsewhere. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> well, I just have one more question for you. So let's just say that an organization's leader makes a change, but it's a bad one. Let's say, for example, okay, you know, we're not getting our parts. They're stuck on the supply ships out there in the harbor. We can't seem to do it. So, hey, I, I'm going to start ordering triple the amount of this product because if we only get a part of it, we'll at least keep our 
production rolling. Well, then let's just say that, you know, Omicron is nothing, COVID goes away, and now you've got just a shit ton of product sitting there and you've made a dumb, dumb decision. How do you come back from that so that the next time you come up with a change, people aren't going to say, oh my gosh, here we go again? Yeah, again, a really good question because we're working with one client right now, a media company that's making a really massive change. And their people are, for the most part, uh, willing to understand and go along with it because they have a lot of credibility because the senior leadership has made good changes in the past. And when they have made uh, bad changes, they've owned up to it. They've mostly made good changes. And when changes were the, I love the guy who's the president of this media company, he's just great. And he is more than happy to have a town hall and say, man, I was just dead wrong. I'm so sorry. The extent to which we've you guys have been negatively affected by this. I'm sorry. Here's how we're going to come back from it. He literally does that, which that just builds trust. And he doesn't have to do that very often. <laughs> Mostly he's able to say, yes, this was a good idea and we executed it well, you know? So it's really about like anything else. It's about building up credibility by being honest, you know, and saying what you're going to do if something doesn't work. That's great. Well, there is no shortage of opportunity to put these principles to the test, is there? No, none. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Well, with that in mind, Erica, how can my audience reach out to you and your team to help them through the many changes I'm sure they're going through? And then how do we get a copy of that book? Oh, easy to get a copy of the book. So the um, two places that I'll send you online, one is my business website, which is Proteus, P-R-O-T-E-U-S dash international dot com. That's our website. You can find out all about us. Or you can go to my name, Erica Anderson, um, which is spelled unusually E-R-I-K-A-A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N.com. But it's just my name, nothing else, ericaanderson.com. And you can find out about the book and where to get it, my other books, my podcast. I do a monthly podcast and, um, you know, just about us and everything we do. So either one of those are good. And the book is available everywhere. It's available online and hopefully in bookstores, but certainly in Amazon or Barnes and Noble or IndieBound and, uh, hard and audible, by the way. Yes. And audible. And I did the, uh, I did the, the, that's why I heard. I'm anxious to hear it. Yeah. So you can actually hear the author read the book, which isn't all that common unless you're Matthew McConaughey or somebody, right? So, (laughs) So you're in good company, Erica. That's great. Yeah. So, and I, and I always, my goal is to help people create the lives they want for themselves. So, All right. Well, if you're listening to this today, I am sure you have at least one major change that you are somehow embroiled in right now. So we have the expert available to you. Please reach out to Erica. Erica, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.